talking about politics. And as we said last week, I get really tired, and you probably do, of me saying welcome, so bienvenuto to all of you. Bienvenuto. Uh, bienvenuto a la realidad, which means welcome to reality. Isn't that exciting? I just like Grumpy Cat. He makes me happy inside for some reason. You type, you don't know, how many of you like Grumpy Cat? Yeah? You just somehow, I don't know what it is about Grumpy Cat. Wow, what a week we've had, huh? Roller coaster ride for many of you, for really for all of us. It's been a crazy, crazy week. You know, when I go on airplane rides, one of the first things I like to do is to make sure that in my seat pocket in front of me is a lovely air sickness bag. You guys, how many of you do that? Yeah, and I love I love air sickness bags. I don't often use them, thankfully. But I felt like with the elections this week, we needed to have air sickness bags for the roller coaster ride that we were all on, right? The ups and downs. You ever looked at those? They say, I'm like speaking of Spanish, they say on the back of them, they're like, how to use the air sickness bag in all these different languages. Like, what's that all about? It's like, if it isn't obvious, here you can use these instructions. Then it puts it in Spanish and it says, por qué los no which is very festive, isn't it? It means for motion discomfort in Spanish. But if you say anything in Spanish, it's happier, right? Por qué los no So I, I think I could be one of the Spanish announcers. I think I could do it if I just knew how to speak. Minor. Other than that, yes, buy a bus, and, have to, and, and I'd have to have horns on top of it. When you go to Mexico, you see these things. It's crazy. That we last time we went, there was a, a guy in a little like a 1972 Datsun car with great big loudspeakers on top of it, blasting this music about that was the Pan Man, and I can't. And that means bread. And he's just driving through neighborhoods, and he opened up the back of his Datsun, and there's like a bakery in there. It was crazy awesome. You know, donuts to your door. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. I digress. Porque los no Anyway, so we needed motion discomfort bags this last week. Um, we have a president-elect that 49% of our country does not really care for. Or maybe 51, depending on how you look at it. If you're looking at the electoral vote or you're looking at the popular vote. No matter how you look at it, at least 50% of our country is not happy about it. And then of the 50, 51% that voted for him, there is a large portion of people that voted for President-elect Trump that threw up in their mouth a little bit when they did. Because they weren't pleased with, he's like, oh, I, I got to do this. But, you know, because of whatever reasons they chose, that this is how they felt about it. Actually, this is what happens when you eat haggis, apparently. Speaking of other countries, that's what ha was happening here. She tried haggis for the first time. So people had this sense of, I, I need to vote this way or I need to vote this way. And they didn't feel good about it. They didn't feel good about their choices. They felt like they needed an emotion sickness bag to go into it. Maybe 20% of our country is elated about how things turned out. But everybody else is somewhere in between elated and the biggest mistake we've ever made. Somewhere on that spectrum. We are all somewhere in the midst of that. And I've got to tell you, I don't think that this sermon could have been more... I mean, couldn't have been better time. Just impossible. When I set aside I, the series I was doing, The God I Wish You Knew, I did not time out how long it would take me to get through the book of Titus to speak on politics and, and relationships and things like that in our country to know that today we would be dealing with Titus 3, the end of our series, the, the Sunday after the elections. I think maybe I was listening to God when I did it. Possibly. 
Don't hold your breath. No, I really was. I mean, I really felt like the Lord put this on my heart. And here it is. It's all sewn together. and It's coming together in this one day. Because you know what? No matter who won on Tuesday, there was people here that were going to be very unhappy about it. No matter who won. It was a no-win situation. No, no matter what, some part of us, I mean, this is it, right? Everybody sucks. We're all in this place. We're going to highly dislike one. Somebody's going to highly dislike the candidate no matter what, to put it nicely. And if we could be honest here, we have a tendency as a culture to not speak very well with people we don't care for, especially leaders in power. Right? Am I right in this? I mean, we tend to tear these people apart, which is why I would never want to be president. I mean, to get beyond the big red button and all those things, I just would want to have all the, all the pundits talking about me, all the news media talking about what I chose to wear or chose to eat or not to eat. You know, read my lips, no broccoli. How many of you guys know what that is? Yes? Everybody over 40, apparently. Oh, except for Rob, you're not over 40 yet, but you're getting there. One more year. You just keep holding on. That was President George Bush the first. No broccoli. Anyway, okay. So here's the difficulty. With everybody up in arms about one candidate or the other, one party or the other, how are we to get along as a nation? And even more importantly, right here in this context, how are we to get along as a church? How are we to get along with one another? And listen, folks, we're, we're facing a time of extreme upheaval. Right? It's human nature to, to dis, dislike one another, to not get along. I mean, what would happen if we all got along? Could you imagine what this world would be like? The dinosaurs, they, they wouldn't fear us, right? They wouldn't. They wouldn't be afraid of us. We are facing a great time of political upheaval, in case you didn't notice. And on Wednesday morning, many of us were very surprised and dismayed by the outcome. And we're looking at the other side of the aisle and we're saying, how could you vote for that? Or how could you not vote for that? Or why isn't this person in power? Why is that person in power? We're just this bound up mess as a nation. There's protests, there's gunshots, there's all kinds of stuff. And I, and I want to be honest with you. In my view of things, I think that, well, let's just be honest, this world is dark, right? And it is only going to get darker as we approach the end, day, the end times, as we approach the last days, as we approach the day that Jesus is going to come. The world is dark and is only going to get darker. And in the midst of that, we have to figure out how to live together. As I watched the newscasters and the reporters and stuff on the on the election, which was really honestly my very favorite part, those guys started election night knowing who was going to win, and then they just began to backpedal and backpedal, and then like their eyes were getting big and they're sweating, and they're like, how could this happen? I don't know what happened, and we missed this, and we missed that, and it was great fun to watch them. Um, and they were asking this question of like, how could we miss this groundswell of support for President-elect Trump? Now, I'm using the word president-elect. They don't use that because they're being really pretty much disrespectful, I think. How could they vote for Trump? How could they allow this to happen? I think that the answer, the reason that so many people miss this is because of the culture we've created in our, our nation about how we talk about politics and political issues. We've created such a combative and toxic soup of of, of anger and hatred toward one another over over different ideas and different issues that it's not safe to share what we really think it's not safe to share what we really believe we can't express our opinions because we're going to wind up with this unnecessarily hateful anger directed toward us if we put something up on facebook i mean how many of you found out the hard way that putting up your view on facebook was going to bring down 
the rain of wrath of somebody upon you. Have you ever experienced that? Man. I mean, I just put the Mariners up there. I'm like, go Mariners. And I get like, no way, the Mariners are lousy. Go Cubs. You know, and it's hateful and angry. But talk about politics, it's even worse. We're unable to express our political opinions in a safe way in this country. And so people kept their mouths shut. And then they voted as their conscience dictated. And everybody was surprised by it. Unless you live in an area where everybody thinks just as you do, and let's be honest again, that most of us do tend to congregate with people who think like us. Unless we live in a world that is entirely like us, we are going to experience a time where we're not going to agree with somebody on a political issue or a politician, and we're going to have to figure out how to get along. We are in a tough spot as a nation. And whenever we're in a tough spot, whenever we're in a tough spot relationally, whenever we're in a tough spot financially, whenever we're in a tough spot theologically, Politically, what do we need to do? We need to turn to Jesus. We need to turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his glorious face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We need to turn our eyes to Jesus. We need to turn our eyes to God's word this morning. And we need to ask the question, here's the situation, God. What do we do? Here's the world we're living in. What do we do? I'm happy that the president was elected, but there's a lot of people that aren't. What do we do? I can't believe this guy got elected. And, and how, how do I live in a world that I'm afraid where people are going to hate me because I don't like the president? How do I live? How do I act? How do I live in the midst of these circumstances? How would Jesus act or speak in this day and age, in this political situation? Fortunately for us, or unfortunately, depending on how you're going to respond to what Paul has to say today, Paul was pretty clear in his instructions to the church in a very similar situation. The question is, this morning, how do we talk about the elephant in the room? How do we deal with the elephant between us? How do we talk about the things that are extremely divisive, like religion and politics, in such a divisive and angry culture? How do we deal with it? How do we talk about the things that matter most to us when we know that there's a great chance that the person standing across from us is going to have a different opinion, and we believe that that different opinion is totally contrary to how God thinks. How do we talk to them and care about them, and how do we show Jesus to them in the midst of that? Let's see what Paul has to say, shall we? That was a that was kind of melodramatic, it felt a little bit, didn't it? I mean, it was very deep, and but I'm trying to really highlight. I, mean, I guess I didn't really need to. You guys know what's going on, so let's see what God has to say about it. Let's go to um, Paul, not Paul. Let's go to Paul chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, who Paul is writing to the guy named Titus. Um, let's remember just a little bit about the, the context here. The, the church in Crete that this is written to has been struggling with right belief and right behavior because of a general dislike of authority, because of a, a negative political situation, and because of false teachings coming in from people on the outside. The gospel got skewed, and they didn't know how to live. And then they're living under the rule of Rome, and so that really messed with them, and they didn't like that very much. So Paul is speaking directly to this. So starting in Titus chapter 3, I better open my own Bible since I asked you to. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Seems like a good place to stop, doesn't it? Just a side note here, I did warn you. I did tell you that we'd be studying the whole book of Titus and that we wouldn't be skipping any of it. 
Just a warning, playtime is over. It's getting real right now, all right? It's getting Chuck Norris sort of real. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Ouch. Ouch. If you don't like what I just read, you could have read ahead yourself and skipped today, but you didn't. And maybe many people did, because there's obviously people missing. I don't know. They're like, whoa, let's not come today. I don't want to hear what he has to say. All right. Anyway, now back to Paul. Let's see. i got to find my place. Let's see. Let's see. For every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's joyful. But when the goodness of the loving and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once or twice, have nothing to do with them. How many of you like to like fall into that category where maybe I should like not have anything to do with you? Anybody want to admit that? Oh, thanks, Risto. Oh, there's a few people. Ouch. All right, verse 11. Knowing that a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. I probably should have finished the sentence before I asked that question. Going on to finish this up, verse 12. When I send Artemis and Tychus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zinnius, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and that our people learn to devote themselves to good works so to help cases in urgent need and not be unfruitful. For all who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. I think that's a really great place to end, isn't it? Grace be with you all. I, I need to say thank you to you for extending grace to me as we've walked through this series. And we've dealt with some pretty big elephants. Um, you've been kind to me. And I feel like the Lord's grace has been on me to speak these things, these truths to us. And to, to walk with it gently and not to cause more dissension than is needed. Um, so I hope that today you'll extend a little more grace to me as we finish this up. Because um, no matter how you voted on Tuesday, I want you to extend grace to one another. And to learn to walk in the grace in the Lord um, as we walk toward heaven together. So what is Paul saying here? First of all, in verse 1, remind them, the believers to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy to all people. The key word here is all. The key word here is all. This is not just to the people that you like. It's not to the people who you agree with. It's not to the candidate that you voted for. It is to them and to everyone else, including and maybe even especially your enemies. These are the people you work with, you go to church with, the people in authority over you, the people you agree with, the people you disagree with, all people. 
you know, I really like ambiguity, actually, in the Bible. A lot of people don't like ambiguity. Like, what does that even mean? Let's kind of work that out. I, I kind of like a little bit of ambiguity because I like to, like, dig around in the Bible and figure out what it means and then, you know, eventually decide. And ambiguity gives us a little bit of safety net, right? We can, like, well, maybe I lean this way instead of this way. But Paul kind of skips the ambiguity here. There is no safety net. There is no wiggle room whatsoever in this. He says directly and specifically, remind them to be submissive to rulers, authorities, and be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of who? No one. Avoid quarreling, be gentle, to show perfect courtesy to who? All people. All people. There's no wiggle room here. There's no wiggle room. Paul given gives us an imperative command going on in verse 8, and he says this, insist on these things, pointing back to these verses, insist on them. It's pretty emphatic, right? It's not like, hey, teach everybody these things. Hey, encourage them to do this. Hey, you know, in all niceness and kindness, tell them to be nice to one another. You know, gently lead them in this. No, he says insist on it. Insist on it. And then he goes on to say anybody who doesn't fall into these don't have anything to do with them. Insist on this kind of behavior. Paul is not making the suggestion. He's not saying it would be nice. He's saying do it. Anyone who follows Jesus, do it. Don't keep up prolonged arguments with anybody. I insist. Now, our 21st century minds, we're in the 21st century, right? Yeah, correct? Okay, good. Because that always throws me off. You know, it's 2000, and you think, oh, this, is, this is, I don't know, 20th century. But anyway, math, right? <laughs> throws us off every time, right, Doug? It's that first century thing, right? So 21st century minds, we're thinking, and this is exactly what I did, is I read this text with some guys this last week. I thought, all right, well, where else do we have to go to balance this in the Bible? Right? Where else in the Bible do we have to go? Because clearly Paul is not talking about bad rulers. Clearly Paul is not talking about people who want to hurt us or, or who want to subject us to something or who want to um, take our rights away or who want to take our stuff away. He's not talking about respecting those sorts of people. So where else in the Bible do we have to go? Surely, there is exceptions. I mean, just think about it. I mean, Hitler, right? Hitler, under that authority and rule, would Paul be saying we need to support him? We need to pray for him? We need to be submissive to him? We need to be obedient to him? Some people think that our candidates this last time were the new Hitlers, right? You have Hitlery, and then you have Donald Hitler. These, and this is real, guys. These are real art. I didn't make these. Can you believe it? I mean, I'm not that much of an artist. But I did not make these, so this is other people saying this stuff. This is not me trying to make this bigger than it is. But this is the kind of stuff our country's been saying. Hillary is, is Hitler with unborn babies. Donald Trump was Hitler with just about everybody else. Women, great, um, racial minorities, things that were said were not kind. And we think, hey, we've got to stand up to Hitler. People didn't stand up to Hitler. That's how World War II happened. That's how the Jewish Holocaust happened. People didn't speak their mind about him. And look what happened. It's our right to speak our mind about this stuff. Not only our right, but our duty. And I agree. Paul's point here is not to say that we do not stand up for what is right. You do need to stand up for what is right. But what he is saying is that the posture of your heart as you stand up for what's right is what matters. We are to disagree without dishonoring. We are to disagree with one another, to disagree with our leaders without dishonoring them. 
That means you can say they are wrong on the issues, but you cannot say she's a hag. Got that from Jan. You can say he is wrong on the issues, but you can't say he is a horrid monster. We cannot, biblically speaking, dishonor our leaders. We must honor them because God has placed them in their place of authority. And we do have to stand up with what's right, but the posture of our heart as we say what is right is what matters most to God. He doesn't say to disagree, uh, to not disagree with lawyer, uh, the authorities, but he's saying that if we disagree, to disagree and not dishonor. Disagree and not verbally destroy or berate the one you disagree with. To not be overly hateful to people on Facebook because you disagree with them. And just a side note, Facebook is a lousy place to have these conversations. Face-to-face -face always, okay? Face-to-face -face always. Get off Facebook if you have to. I know that the temptation here is to say that this has got to be balanced, but again, Paul doesn't give us a balance. In fact, if you read the, the bulk of Paul's work, now Paul was living in a world that was getting increasingly violent toward Christians. We live in a world where we might get berated on Facebook. Paul lived in a world where he might get hung on a cross upside down. Paul lived in a world where people were being gathered up and tied to poles and set on fire for a garden party. That is the culture in which Paul says, submit to authorities. Be kind to the authorities. Speak well of the authorities. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient and ready for every good work and to speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. Reading all of Paul's work on this subject, I notice he never once says, except for this person, or except for when they start taking your property, except for when they start taxing you, except for when you completely disagree with them. He doesn't ever say that. And if you want to go one further, Jesus, the guy that this is all built on, it, on, he had some things to say about this too. You know what he said about rulers and authorities? Submit to them. And you know what he said about people that they considered your enemies? Love them and do good to them. Not tear them down or destroy them. Jesus doesn't say we can hate our enemies. He says we have to love them. I can love you, but I don't have to like you. But I don't know if I can like you and still do good works to you and for you. But that is what Scripture calls us to. There's no way to get out of it. There is no exception for anybody who says, I follow Jesus. There's no excuse for any of us ever to tear down, berate, or any, in any way hate our leadership. That's kind of hard, isn't it? It is not easy. I told you, there's no wiggle room, and you guys could have just skipped out today. If you just read Titus chapter 3, you could have missed it. But now you're here, and you got to listen to God. This is a command that Paul gives. It's a command that Jesus gives to love our enemies. It's a command that Paul gives to be submissive, and to speak well of our rulers and authorities. Now, I kind of want to slightly change subjects here. I want to give you a little bit of an English lesson. Some of you know how funny that is. Most of you probably don't, apparently. Um, and as much as, an, <laughs> as much as an English lesson I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you really a Bible study lesson. So I'm going to give you a Bible study tool. You ready? A tool to put in your tool belt when you read the Bible. You ready for this? You're going to want to write this down. Martin Luther said it this way. I'm going to use his words first, and then I'll use my words, because my words are better than Martin Luther's. Anyway. But Martin Luther gives me authority, so here we go. Martin Luther said it this way, Imperatives in the Bible always flow out of indicatives. Imperatives and indicatives. 
Remember English class sentence diagramming? I don't either. Actually, I had to go look it up. Um, if you're wondering, I did. Uh, imperatives are commands. Okay, imperatives are always commands. Do this. So Paul's statement here to Titus or to the, the people in Crete remind them to be submissive, to to not speak evil, to avoid quarrels. This is an imperative command. But imperative commands in the Bible always flow out of indicatives. An indicative is a declaration of what God has done. Commands always flow in the Bible out of gospel declarations. Commands in the Bible always are, are were, they're given to us, but they flow out of what we really believe is true. They flow out of what God has done for us. They flow out of the work of the cross. It's not we do these things to make God happy, but we say that God has done these things for us, and therefore we act this way. It is a reverse order from how we think they should go. It's not that we do these things to make us better people that God approves of. It's not that we do things to be more righteous. It's that when we become aware of what God has done for us in Christ, we naturally live differently. We look upon the, right, the cross and we do righteousness naturally. We do good things naturally. When you read God's word, look for indicatives. Look for the gospel declarations. Look for the why you should be doing X, Y, and Z. So now Paul gives us one of his clearest declarations of the gospel in the whole Bible. He's going to give us the indicative of his imperative command to be uh, submissive to our rulers. Here it is in verse 4. But when the goodness of the love and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he did what? Saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Look, ladies and gentlemen, God wants us to be gracious to our leadership and gracious to people we disagree with because he is gracious to us. How often do we need to be reminded that it's not our work that saves us. It's not our good words. It's not our good looks. Although, I mean, I've got that going on, right? It's not these things that saves us. It's the work of Jesus. We forget over and over. It's amazing. How many times you read the Bible, it just keeps coming up over and over again. It's not what you do. It's not what you do. It's not what you do. But I'm still doing. I'm still trying to earn it. Still trying to work my way there. You're like, Pastor, you say this over and over again. I've got to because I keep messing it. I keep forgetting. You keep forgetting. So we have to keep being reminded. Not because we did something that made God think that we were worth saving. God saved us because of his own mercy. His own heart for us drove him to the cross. It is only because of his mercy and kindness and his love that we can say that we are sons and daughters of God. Paul's imperative command to be gracious to our leaders, to disagree and not dishonor, it flows out of his deep belief that God has been gracious to us first. In the 1930s, um, our, our country went through what's called the Great Depression history lesson, for some of you. Some of you were there, I think. But um, yeah. Just making sure you're with me, making sure you're awake. In the 1930s, we had the Great Depression. And what a lot of people don't know or realize is that in the time period leading up to the Great Depression, there was massive amounts of migrants coming into our country, illegal aliens 
who were brought in, even snuck in by companies to act as, as servant, uh, servant labor for their mines, for their railroads. You know, whole, whole villages of Chinamen were brought, it's, people from China were brought into the country to work the railroads. They were treated poorly. And there's even a story in Lewiston of a whole group of them who were murdered after their use, they were no longer useful to them. That's just out of Lewiston. So this country was flooded with these people who were uh, undocumented, who were uh, not U.S. citizens. And so as the government began to care for people during the Great Depression who had lost everything, they're, they're feeding the Americans first, right? They're feeding the, na the nation, national citizens. And the illegal immigrants had to hide in fear because they knew if they went back to their country, it would be worse than what they had there, but they had nothing here. In the middle of all of this, this woman, who later becomes the uh, leader of a, of a denomination in the church, was looking out her window and she sees these um, immigrants out on the street. There's Russians and there's Chinese and there's Japanese and there's Mexicans and they're on the streets and they're starving to death and there are children who are starving to death. And in the middle of that, Jesus speaks to this woman and says to her, to me, every single one of these people is somebody. They're not a commodity to be bought and sold. They're not, they're not a problem. They're not uh, another mouth to feed. They're not uh, a tool to be used. They're a person made in my image. They are somebody to me, and they have a value and a price. So that woman left the room and went and talked to her church council, and they created something called the Angelus Temple Commissary, which is what this picture is right here. During the Great Depression, Amy Simple McPherson, the founder of the Foursquare Denomination, fed more people in Los Angeles who were undocumented citizens than the federal government fed in the rest of the nation. And on the wall inside this building is this statement, anybody and everybody is somebody to Jesus. When we get into political discussions, it's really easy to forget that we're not talking about an issue, we're not talking about a problem, we're talking about people. We're talking about people. We're talking about babies. We're talking about women. We're talking about people of other races, of other colors, of other religions. But always, 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 we're talking about people. And here's the thing. To Jesus, everybody is somebody. These people are made in the image of God. And he loves them. And he wants us to be gracious to everybody. Not just those we like, not just those we elect, not just those we agree with, but to everyone. Why? Because, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. This keeps standing out to me. Hated by others and hating one another. We were like that. We were that. You and me. Then there's this glorious word, but. My favorite word in the whole Bible, but. And it's a big, big but. Hey, where's your mind? But, but when God's goodness appeared, we were saved. We weren't good people before God saved us. We were, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. If you read through the Greek, it literally says that we were willfully disobedient. We chose to be blind. We were living in the dark on purpose because we didn't want to see the truth. 
This is who we were. We were blind and in the dark, and we wanted it that way. We were slaves to passions and behaviors. We bought into the lies of our culture, and one of the biggest lies of our culture is this, that rejecting God's law leads to freedom. That if I, I don't want to do what you have to say, I'm a, I'm a free person. I can do whatever I want. We reject God's laws. What it does every time is leads to slavery. And that is where we were at. When we reject God, we become addicted to, slaves to, other passions, other desires. We pass our days in envy and malice. And we want it that way. Aren't you glad that Jesus changed that for you? Now here's the punchline. The leaders and people that you see is so awful, the people who disagree with you, the people who have said things that hurt you, that scare you, those people, you are no different than them. We were all lost, but in God's great mercy, he saved us. They are somebody to Jesus too. It's not just the victim. It's not just the one who is, is weak or at risk. Those in power are somebody to Jesus too. We are no different than Hillary Clinton. We are no different than Donald Trump. And I even hate to say this, but really we are no different than Hitler himself. The worst person that we can think of in society and in history. We are broken individuals who are being saved by God's grace. The beauty of the, word, of the gospel is all tied up in this word, but. But when God's goodness and loving kindness appeared to us in our circumstances, our situation, our place and time in history, he saved us. When God's goodness and kindness and grace and mercy appears to Hillary Clinton in her moment, in her time, in her place, he can and will and does and is and has saved her. And the same is true for Donald Trump and even for the libertarian candidates. I'm not sure how that works, but all of them. So let me say this. Never underestimate the power of Jesus to change a person. Never underestimate the power of Jesus to change somebody. It can appear to anyone at any time and at any place. It's the power of resurrection, the power that God will use to restore this entire earth someday. But there is no hurt, there is no fear, there is no guilt, there is no corruption, there is no life that cannot be changed, be redeemed, be healed by the love of God. The people that God used to change this world were very deeply flawed men and women. Paul was extremely harsh and abrasive and forward and to the point. Not a person most of us would probably like spending time with. Peter, he was a coward. These are the men that Jesus used to change history. And you know what? They weren't made of more promising stuff than you or me. They weren't. So God wants his people to be gracious. Not just to those we like or agree with. Not just to those like us, but to everyone. Because... I split pages. Uh, there we go. Paul says to show regard for all because they are dead, just like you were, but also made in the image of God, just like you are. When you see people this way, the world's going to start to look a little bit differently. You'll find yourself giving away your money. You'll find yourself giving away your time to serve people. You'll find yourself uh, loving people that you didn't expect to be able to love. You'll find yourself reserving your political opinion so that somebody else can see Jesus. You'll find yourself speaking kindly of your leaders. It will change you. 
you'll find that you are ready and eager to, good, to do good works, not because you have to, not because we need a Sunday school teacher or because we're going to go out and clean the parking lot, but because you want to, because you want to see the world to see the lighthouse of Jesus living in you. And for the sake of the world, you want Christ to burn like a fire in you. When you start to see that this world is lost and they are just like you, sinners in need of grace, God is after people who are gracious because he is gracious. God is after people who will treat others as they have been treated. These things, Paul says, authenticate our faith. They, they show off our faith to the outside world and, and it's evidence that it's real and true. The saying is trustworthy, Paul says, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So, while it's not okay for our leaders to make racist, misogynist statements ever, 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 it is not okay. It is equally not okay for us to bash them, to demean them, to dishonor them, or otherwise speak badly of them. Everybody is somebody to Jesus. Whether he's a terrorist or he's a president. Jesus is at work at them, just as he is at work in you. Lastly, Never underestimate the power of Jesus in you to influence somebody else. So never underestimate the power of God to change somebody. But never underestimate the power of Jesus inside of you to influence somebody else. Oh, we do this over and over again. We think how I act, how I live, my choices don't really matter. But people are looking at you and you go to church on Sunday morning and they see you as a follower of Jesus. Your life influences others. Heidi and I have friends who are not Christians who are completely baffled by Jesus in the church. And one of our friends was sharing with Heidi recently that she went on Facebook and she, uh, she she's a veterinarian by trade and has some opinions about how wolves should be treated in our country. And I know some of you have opinions how wolves should be treated. We're not going to talk about the politics of that, okay? We're just going to talk about this situation. So she went out there and posted this thing about she started to post this thing about wolves, but she realized that she knew all these farmers and people who think the opposite of how she how these wolves should be treated. And she started to read how what they said about people who allowed wolves into our society and who believe that wolves are good things and kind creatures that are puppies and you know sweet things and and they were like just downright nasty and mean about it. And she realized that if she posted her true opinions about what she thought about wolves on Facebook. First of all, she'd lose a bunch of friends. Secondly, she'd be a pariah in her community because she lives out in the in the, the fields and the farm areas. She would just be shunned, set aside. She was scared to share her opinion on wolves. How do you think people see us as we berate and humiliate and deride our leaders? from a faith perspective. How do you think that they'll feel about us? Do you think that they'd feel safe? Do you think that they would feel safe to be able to share their opinion and to wrestle with faith? No. They feel afraid. When they hear our venom, when they hear our anger over political issues, more importantly, if they feel that Christians are unsafe to talk to about things that matter important deeply to them, how safe do you think they feel to talk to you about things. Are you safe? God wants us to be gracious to everyone because he is gracious and he wants people to know it. 
Never underestimate the power of Jesus in you to influence somebody. And never underestimate the power of your opinions to scare somebody away. To sum it all up, to sum up all of Titus, Paul tells us to put all of our trust in Jesus. Not to trust our government, not to trust our authorities or our elected rulers, not to trust the powers of this world, but to trust Jesus alone. To grow up in our faith and to start treating other people like God has treated them. With graciousness and kindness and love. Be gracious to everyone like God was gracious to you. Disagree without dishonoring. Amy Semple McPherson said it this way, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, I insist on charity and kindness. We're going to celebrate communion this morning as our, our closing. You might be here this morning and you have felt, uh, maybe because of the election, maybe because of some events that have happened in your life, because of some hurt or pain that has happened to you or some abuse, you may be here this morning and feel like that God has forgotten you or that you were worthless or have no value, that God has overlooked you. Maybe because you've been treated poorly by other Christians, or maybe just a parent, or a friend, or a grandparent. I want to tell you today, no matter what has happened to you in this life, no matter what you've experienced, no matter what our elected leaders may say, everybody is somebody to Jesus. Old, young, rich, poor, sinner, saint, Jew, Greek, slave, all of us, everybody, is somebody to Jesus. Every one of us carry the highest value imaginable. Unless we forget, unless we forget that, Jesus started a tradition for his church. We call it communion. It's a remembering of the price that was paid for you. It was a remembering of what Jesus did for you, for me, for us on the cross. One night, somebody that was supposed to be Jesus' friend, someone who was supposed to have his back, somebody who was supposed to be looking out for him. One night, a friend betrayed Jesus. But on that night, and with that friend in the room, Jesus had a celebration, a meal, and they were just eating dinner together. And Jesus stood up, and he took some bread, like this bread, and he said, guys, this is my body. This is going to be broken for you. This is my body. This is, this is your value. This is how much God loves you. God took the form of human flesh and let that flesh be broken for our sake. This is my body that is broken for you. You are valuable. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine. This is just juice. But he took wine and he blessed it. And he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is my blood the life force in my veins that is to be spilled for you. The attitude of a servant, a sacrificial life, poured out for you, including the betrayer, including the victim, each one of us. Drink it and remember your value. Drink it and remember your worth. Drink it and remember that you are somebody to Jesus. 
We take communion together as a reminder of the price that was paid for God to reconcile himself to us. But of the value that he places on us as well. And the thing about this is, because such a high price has been poured out for us, all of us, including people who aren't here, including people who don't even believe in God, this act unites all of us under one king. So whether you voted for Donald Trump, or you voted for Hillary Clinton, or if you voted for a third-party candidate, or you didn't vote at all, this is for you. Whether you go to work tomorrow morning and you just blow it entirely with your language or your attitude or your heart, whether you're an alcoholic or a drug addict, or whether you're completely clean and free and walking secure in Jesus Christ, this is for you. We are one in Jesus as we take this. So in a time of political upheaval and turmoil and division in our country, we take something that is a sign of unity in the body of Christ into ourselves, reminding us that this whole world has a value placed upon their head. Everybody is somebody to Jesus. So what I'm going to do is invite our communion service to come forward now. Janie is going to play a song for us. And uh, we're just going to come as the Lord places it on your heart to come. I'm going to pray and bless it. And uh, thanks, guys. We take uh, communion by uh, the technical word is intinction. Kind of weird, huh? But uh, this is the body of Christ that's broken for you. This is the body of Christ that's broken for you. This is the blood of Christ that's shed for you. This is the blood of Christ that's shed for you. And what we do is we encourage you to come forward as you will, tear a piece of bread, or grab a gluten-free cracker if you can't handle the gluten. Gluten-free Jesus. And we'll just dip it in the in the cup of the blood and, and take it into ourselves. It's a sign of unity together, but a reminder of your value in Jesus. This is a sacred and important moment for all of us. So we're going to do this in a sacred attitude, in a heart of prayer, and of worship, and of thanksgiving. Father, I thank you for your sacrifice for us. I thank you the value that you've placed on us. I thank you that we are of great worth to you, that everybody is somebody, and that is even me. And I pray that as we take this, we would be reminded that those we disagree with, that those who who seem vile in our own eyes, that we would see past that and see their humanity and their value in you. We would be gracious to them as you've been gracious to us. And we would serve one another with good works, be prompted to worship, to love, and to good deeds as we take this, your body and blood, Jesus' name, amen.